Welcome once again to Truth Script Tuesday on a Wednesday. I feel like uh, that line from the Lego movie, if anyone's seen that, I think it, it, they, there's a line in there uh, about Taco Tuesday on a Thursday. And uh, that's how I feel. I couldn't get to it yesterday. And uh, we haven't done Truth Script Tuesday for a week. So I, I missed last Tuesday. So I thought, you know, I got to do it, even if it's on a Wednesday. Uh, so we're going to go over a number of articles. We actually have six articles today. So it might be a little bit longer, but... Um, uh, I, I don't think that some of these articles will take as much time, uh, but I'm, I'm going to be uh, summarizing some of them, some really uh, good content this week on the Truth Script website. Before we get to that, though, just want to remind everyone uh, that we have a men's retreat coming up on September 21st through 24th in the Adirondack Mountains, the beautiful Adirondack Mountains in New York. We have a number of speakers, Tom Rush, Andrew Rappaport is going to be there. Uh, from Striving for Eternity Ministries, uh, Edie Robles, uh, some of are familiar with his podcast, uh, Lance Nadahara, who's actually a uh, really accomplished chef. He's won the the TV show Chopped, if you've seen that. I think he won it twice, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but he's he's worked with Ray Comfort and Living Waters to produce some of their material. Uh, so he's going to be speaking. And then my own dad, who's also a pastor, Scott Harris, is going to be there, and I'll be there. Um, the main speaker is Tom Rutch. He's going to be talking about some of the experiences he's had in the military and in ministry. He's a pastor. Uh, he was an officer, though, I think in the Marines, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but he is going to talk about what being a real man is and uh, how to be a real man in these uh, challenging times. So it's overcomingevilconference.com, overcomingevilconference.com. You can go sign up there. Uh, and if you go there, uh, there is a feature I should probably mention to everyone there is a carpooling feature. So if you're traveling from a distance, you can click on this carpooling feature and uh, it will show you some of the, um, there, there's a wait list too. <laughs> if, you, if you don't see something, someone coming from your area, you can join a wait list if you want to carpool. Uh, but you have uh, someone coming from Ohio, someone coming from Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh, I know I saw this morning someone join the wait list, I think from New Jersey, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, so you can do that and, uh, that, that should help coordinate, uh, people's rides who are coming from distances. I know that's a concern, uh, for some, but, uh, I mean, if you're anywhere in between any of these places too, you can contact that person and say, Hey, I'm on your route. Can, can you pick me up in, uh, in Pennsylvania? And if you're coming from a place that's South of there, for example, uh, anyway, we're, look, we're looking forward to a great time at this conference. I would highly encourage you. You're, you're not going to get a better bang for your buck, uh, then the beautiful Adirondack Mountains in the fall foliage season, the peak of it, uh, with great food, with great, um, great speakers, great fellowship, and there's plenty of times to enjoy uh, the outdoor environment there while you're there. So uh, everyone who went last year that, that I talked to said they had a wonderful time, and so we're looking forward to another wonderful time this year. All right, let's talk about the uh, TruthScript uh, articles that we have on the website. So I'm uh, I'm just at truthscript.com, the main uh, page here, and uh, I will remind everyone if they want to submit an article, they can scroll down to the bottom of the page. There is a submission um, uh, tab. I think it's publish. You, you, you press publish, and there'll be guidelines for w what's expected, uh, and then you can create an account, and, and you can be part of TruthScript as well. Uh, so uh, this week, we're going to start with uh, some articles from last week, actually. We're going to start here. Christian, here are four reasons to skip Oppenheimer, the movie Oppenheimer. Uh, and this was written on July 26th by uh, David Harris, the president of True Script, my brother as well. And, um, and he, he goes over some of the ethical questions. Uh, there's two 
camps uh, that one camp says that dropping the atom bombs was wrong. It's not it's not morally justified to purposely target non-combatants. And then another camp says, yeah, but if we didn't do that, we would have to invade Japan and there would have been, uh, you know, 10 million uh, deaths, uh, American deaths or there would have it would have been worse. So dropping the atom bombs, I mean, comparatively uh, was morally justified. So um, David doesn't take a firm stand on this because uh, that's not the purpose of it, uh, really. But he just says that. Um, Despite the release of Christopher Nolan's uh, trombone blasting, rapid scene switching, dysphoria inducing Oppenheimer last week, we'll have to keep waiting for the film, uh, for that film perhaps indefinitely, the film that uh, deals with these issues, I suppose. Uh, so, so it doesn't, you, you would think that this gets into that, that moral dilemma, but it doesn't, apparently. I have not seen the movie. Uh, as the title indicates, I'm recommending you skip Oppenheimer. Uh, and he says, regardless of what the winsome evangelical bloggers might tell you. And he gives a few reasons. He says, uh, he goes to Philippians 4.8. He talks about the things we're supposed to think on. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. He talks about Ephesians 5.11, uh, which says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but in, in the, instead expose them. And he says, Oppenheimer doesn't actually uh, fall under either of these. It, there's nothing worthwhile in the film that will inspire you or, uh, help you live life in a way that's give you a, gives you a perspective to help you live life in a way that is um, makes you a better person. I mean, some film can really do that. There's uh, some of my favorite movies. You, you think of like Chariots of Fire. You think of uh, Ben Hur. You say some of these great movies. Some of the great Western movies, uh, even um, they give you an example of courage of uh, standing against the odds, even when it costs you. They give you examples of sacrifice for the right things. And that can inspire you, that can help you uh, in your walk with the Lord, in your daily life. Uh, this doesn't do any of those things. And uh, if it was to expose evil, if it was just to, to show, hey, this guy's evil, and it shows evil for what it is, I mean, there's something maybe worthwhile there, but it doesn't even do that. So it doesn't do either one. And so he says, you know, that that's really, there's, there's no moral uh, advantage you gain from going to a movie like this. He says... Um, that there's shameless prostituting. Um, there's, I guess, some very sexually explicit scenes. Uh, so, so you're so you succumb to that if you go to a movie like this. Uh, there's a disturbing detachment. He says there will be some predictable reactions among the evangelicals to Oppenheimer. The typical response in the blogosphere will probably be a recognition that the use of nuclear weapons at the end of World War II was unjustified and sinful. The movie demonstrates this. Um, by insinuating that Oppenheimer felt guilty for his role in developing the weapons. Unfortunately, this response misses something monumental going on in Oppenheimer. In the wake of statues and war memorials being torn down over the last decade across the West, many have noted that the low-hanging fruit that's been erased would give way to a wider, more com comprehensive attack on our history, and that would one day include World War II heroes. I have predict predicted that myself. Um, and, and I've done it because I've just said, look, on my other podcast, Conversations That Matter, I've said, look, uh, the first time nuclear weapons were ever used in history on a civil civilian populations in a context in which you had United States military men and prominent figures saying racially insensitive things about their enemies in Japan. Uh, and it was common. It was accepted. Cartoons were made about it. You have uh, the fact that the army was segregated at the time when uh, th this was all going on, uh, racially segregated. Um, there's just there's, there's too much there that uh, I don't understand how 
you you can't take you, you take down a, a statue to Robert E. Lee. How how do you escape taking down a statue to like the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima? And the only thing that seems to have saved the World War II vets is really two things in my mind. One is that some of them are still alive. There's a, still a few of them alive. My grandfather's one of them. And and even though, you know, there's their kids are still alive. So the boomer generation remembers them. So it's very hard to rip down that history when you have people directly connected. That's grandpa. That's dad. Uh, but as you get farther away from that, there'll be less of a connection. Uh, you also have their sacrifices and so forth and memorialized in film. Um, but those films, I, I would say there's still some films like that. But you, the, the films now are like Oppenheimer. They're, it's diminishing. Um, but the second reason uh, that I think it, 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 there's been this kind of um, chief elevation of the Nazis as the worst iteration of any political government in history, the worst regime that's ever uh, that's ever existed. And the United States was morally right to oppose the Nazis. And because Japan, you know, they sided with the Nazis, uh, that uh, the, this means that the United States can be absolved of any guilt, whether that's dropping nuclear bombs, whether that's carpet bomb or, or, or whatever they called it. It was a carpet bombing, but they uh, bombed, you know, a lot, <laughs> like in really nasty ways, places like Dresden, uh, whether it's I mean, I mean. War has war's messy. War's always going to have messy elements to it. But there were some particularly bad things that um, that happened, even on the Allied side. And uh, and and you could use those. You could use those to say, well, we should take down these statues, which I would be totally against. But anyway, um, that's making a longer point here. I think uh, I, I think that's pretty much the point that David's making here too. Um, and this not, there's a nihilistic trend, uh, very common in other movie genres, but World War II has this idealistic sacred shield protecting it from deconstruction. That shield appears to have been lowered. That's significant. That, that line there might be the most significant thing about Oppenheimer, that the World War II movies now are not... I mean, you see this with Civil War movies, by the way. You see this with um, m movies about the war between the states from, you know, you have like Getty Gettysburg and then you had gods and generals was probably the last movie that still showed some uh, forth, some honor, some, but you had the Hunley, you had gone with the wind. Um, you, you even had some of the Disney movies made in the sixties that, that touched on civil war things that saw both sides generally as honorable and uh, standing up for what they thought was right. And, um, and so, you know, th this was just the common, uh, it humanized it. This was just the common theme until you get movies like cold mountain, and which I haven't even seen the whole thing. Uh, I, I turned it off. This is, this is worthless. Um, you, you get movies. Uh, I mean, I don't even watch movies on that subject today that come out because they're worthless. Uh, they are they're all about deconstructing something um, most of the time inaccurately, like Free State of Jones. Very inaccurate. Uh, it's it's stuff like that. And so um, anyway, uh, that they're doing it to World War Two now is what or it's starting. The beginning of that process is starting is what. Uh, David's trying to say. Uh, he says it's by elites for elites. Uh, it's critically acclaimed. So the people in um, that's generally bad now, right? If the Hollywood industry likes it. Uh, and you get the sense that this is a film you need to believe is highly important and valuable. So there's this kind of peer pressure that if you don't think it's highly important and valuable, you must not have good taste. Film's not interesting, it's not really entertaining. The, train it made, the trailer made it seem like it would be intense, uh, but it's just bland. It's mostly political drama. So conclusion, uh, I was extremely excited for Oppenheimer. I've eaten up much of Nolan's past work, Christopher Nolan. 
especially the prestige and inception. I'm a sucker for the mind bending, have to watch it again to understand plot lines. Uh, but he, he said, that's not what Oppenheimer is. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that, that, that's the review of Oppenheimer. Don't go see Oppenheimer, I guess, uh, go see, I don't know, mission impossible instead or something. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I actually did see that movie, so I can say that it's pretty clean. I'm, I'm there might've been a few, I don't even know if there were words in it, to be honest with you. I don't remember anything significant. It was just an action adventure movie. So maybe that's the one you need to go see. Uh, Gospel Coalition would be telling you right now, you should probably go see the Barbie movie, I think. But uh, we haven't done a review on the Barbie movie. I don't know that we will at Truth Script. If someone submits something, we'll take a look. But uh, that's uh, on Oppenheimer. This, the second uh, piece I want to go over is by Pastor Troy Skinner. He's written before for Truth Script. Is Jeremiah 29, 11 about personal prosperity? This is a great topic, and, and not a lot of material is on this topic, correcting the misappropriation of it. Um, because people take Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the, the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for prosperity, and they say, that's for me. Uh, the Lord knows the plans I have, uh, he has for me, and the, these are plans for me personally. And he says, look, you, you, you're ripping it out of its context and applying it to something that it wasn't intended for. Jeremiah 29, 11 um, is a comforting verse. And, and I, I suppose it should be a comforting verse. Uh, and he, so he gives you some background. He says, um, that God set the nation of Israel uh, apart and especially cared for his chosen people. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. They entered the promised land. Their obedience to the law would bring blessing. Um, early in their history, the Israelites demanded a human king. The kingdom split in two. So you had the northern and the southern kingdom. They ignored the warnings by a number of God's prophets. Uh, 100 years later, Jeremiah brought a similar message uh, to, to the southern kingdom as had uh, been delivered to the northern kingdom. Uh, Judah failed to learn from the negative example of their brothers to the north, so most of the southern kings practiced idolatry and committed abominable acts. It was in the midst of this rebellious climate that Jeremiah was called to speak to God's people. And so there is this element of judgment. He's telling his countrymen, time's up. This is the primary thrust of the book. It's no wonder uh, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He was preaching a death knell against his own people. Can you imagine uh, going to your own community and start just saying, look, time's up. You have rejected judge God. Judgment is coming. It'd be hard. Can you I mean, imagine doing that to your own family, your own countrymen, your own kinsmen? It's very difficult. So uh, he had an unpopular message. False prophets contradicted it. It was, it was an unpleasant truth. Uh, Jeremiah even used the language of a new covenant, though, uh, which other than in the book of Jeremiah is only used in the New Testament. It's tempting to understand Jeremiah 29.11 in, in this context. However, this glorious renewal isn't talked about until chapter 30. So he's saying uh, th th this kind of light at the end of the tunnel, he, he, Pastor Troy Skinner doesn't think that's what Jeremiah 29.11, uh, I guess, is about. So it isn't the context of the passage leading up to Jeremiah 29.11. Jeremiah would be charged with treason for what he wrote in chapter 29, mainly that the Jews shouldn't fight against exile. God had a plan for a remnant of his own people, and it involved going willingly to Babylon where they would actually work with their captors. Jeremiah wrote a letter telling the exiles to settle down and raise families in Babylon. The letter in Jeremiah chapter 29 told the exiles to peace, peacefully seek the benefit of the nation that took them captive. An another verse that maybe it's taken out of context too. This is the verse that the Tim Keller types love to use uh, about you know, valuing the city that you're in. You got to love New York City or something. And, uh, and and of course, you should seek the welfare of uh, the places that you are, whether city or not. I mean, that's but but the whole point of the context is, look, you should be in the promised land. If you had obeyed, that's where you'd be. Uh, but 
this is where you are because of disobedience. So you need to make the best of it, right? That's the whole point. So it's it's not so much um, about seeking the welfare of those who are unbelievers around you, although that's a good thing. It's about uh, making sure that you you put down roots temporarily, at least in the area that you're in for the good of your people for this is don't pine for something that is better, even though it is better, uh, because this is what God has for you right now. Right. So that that actually would make the application that the Kellerites give a little different if you think about it. Like, yeah, yeah, New York City is not a great place to be, you know, or something like that. But don't pine for something better right now because because of your disobedience, God puts you in New York City. I mean, that's not the application they want to make, but I digress. Um, Jeremiah told the exiles that after 70 years, God would come to them and fulfill his promise. Uh, the 70 years of Jeremiah can be understood in a variety of ways, but one way or another, the principle of fulfillment should be understood as arriving at the cross of Christ. Uh, so God is sovereign, uh, God is sovereign over history and he chooses pagan nations like Cyrus to bring his people back to the promised land and doing these things. God sets the stage for the central point of human history, which of course is, uh, the coming of Christ. So what's wrong with seeing Jeremiah 29, 11 as merely a verse to comfort the individual Christian. If we see the only personal blessing in this verse, we can lose sight of the context of judgment and tribulation. The message of this verse was delivered in a letter from Jeremiah to God's chosen people when they were in exile. The people were at that very moment experiencing judgment, yet there is this promise of astounding restoration that would come through that judgment. Here is an indicator of the ultimate judgment that would bring the ultimate restoration approximately five centuries later. Um, and, and then he ends it with, he says, the 11th verse in Jeremiah 29 can certainly bring comfort to the individual, but this isn't a verse aimed primarily at the individual. Jeremiah is writing a corporate letter to a group. In this verse, when God says he has plans to prosper you, he is talking about a corporate you. In certain parts of the U.S., this verse might better be translated as, I know the paths I have for y'all, declares the Lord. Uh, plans to prosper y'all and, and not do harm to y'all. Uh, plans to give y'all hope and a future. God has a plan for a whole people, and that plan for his people is accomplished through the saving work of Jesus. Inappropriately, seeing this verse as primarily a message to the individual is to minimize the grandness of this word from God. He will prosper and not harm an entire nation of believers through the epochs of human history. So, so, so here's here's the main point. Um, the, 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 I think the main point that Pastor Skinner is bringing out here, which is a really good one, is that most of the time this is applied to uh, God's got you know it's coupled with like God brings about um, the best possible outcome in your situation because uh, he. Uh, blesses those who are called according to his purpose. It, it's in that vein of, of he won't leave you or forsake you. He, there are these precious promises, and Jeremiah 29, 11 is kind of lopped in there. Is, uh, things are going to turn out good. They're, they're bleak now, but they're going to turn out well because God uh, loves you and, and, he, and he wants to bless you individually. Uh, and sometimes that there's a sense of like, because you know, you're, you're doing the right thing. So yeah, this trial doesn't make sense because you've been doing the right thing, but it's going to turn around. Um, and Jeremiah 29, 11 is more about like, you messed up. You did the wrong thing. You're in judgment. You're, you're going to, you're going to have to hanker down where you are, even though you don't want to be there. And, uh, and down the road though, don't worry, God, God will deliver you. It ain't now though. It ain't now. So, uh, you have to bear the punishment for disobedience. That's, that's at least what I'm picking up from this. So, uh, that is uh, about Jeremiah 29, 11. We have another um, biblical uh, article here.
from actually my dad, Pastor Scott Harris, who will be at the Truth Script Conference, Living in the Time of the Judges. And uh, this is actually a fairly simple article, um, and he just talks about what the judges, the, the book of Judges really gets across, the point it gets across. Uh, Proverbs twenty, uh, Proverbs 16.25 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And the Judges illustrates this. Uh, and America uh, has historically functioned with a comparatively high level of personal freedom because of the moral virtues of the society influenced by Christianity. Um, but that's changing. And we've had God's blessing because of that, but that is changing. And um, as an increasing percentage of the population rejects God, there has been a corresponding decline in self-control. And so that's what we're seeing around us. And it resembles Israel during the time of the judges. And, and one of the things I was thinking about this morning is um, you, you can see during the uh, split kingdoms, northern and southern kingdom of Israel, if you read, you know, first uh, and second Kings, uh, you're going to find that there's there's a pattern of mostly bad kings. <laughs> mostly, you don't get too many good kings. You know, Hezekiah is a good king, but he stands out. Uh, there's, there's just not too many, you know, you have Josiah, you have, so if, if, I don't know what the percentage is, but that ratio is pretty high, evil Kings, uh, more of them than good Kings, minority of good Kings. You look at the judges and it's even worse, I would say. I mean, you get these temporary little blips where God raises someone up to do a, a certain work. And then, you know, they may even fail. They may not even be, I mean, you look at Barack and, I mean, he, he couldn't even, he had to have Deborah hold his hand. I mean, you, you look at the judges and, and this is a period of leaderlessness, essentially. And that's the same thing we have now. We talk about managerial elite theory and so forth, but you can see that there, there even though uh, you don't have the industrial revolution or modernity or any of those things, you do have a similar scenario in the book of judges in, in the fact that you just don't have any leaders. People aren't respectable. You don't have enough of, of those kinds of people. Uh, that are willing to sacrifice, that have the loyalty of their people. And and we're in that situation now. We're in a similar situation where we just, I mean, why is Trump doing so well? Trump, of all people, really? Tr Donald Trump, with all his personal moral failings and everything, why does he have the trust of people? This is a longer conversation, but it's because, mostly, I think, because there's such a dearth of trust in people who have lied, who have let uh, their constituents down, who have uh, said they're going to do something and they don't do it, who are about personal advancement and not loving their own people. And, and Trump has managed to uh, convince people that he actually is more authentic, even despite his failings, that he actually loves people, that he actually care, has their best interest in mind. That's a, that's really all it is, in my opinion. And, and he, because you know he's so hated by people who do want their own advancement, who don't care about people, uh, it, it serves to boost his credibility. Um, but, you know, People have lamented, why Trump? Why not someone else? Well, it, it's simple in my mind, uh, because who is that? Where is the someone else? There really aren't people at least operating at that level who, who managed to make it to that level before being disqualified for some reason uh, that are that, that can convince uh, people to trust them. So anyway, we're, we're living in that time. Uh, the first reason for the failure of the theocracy uh, and the need for judges was the incomplete obedience of the people in driving out, destroying the people that had been in the land. So uh, because they didn't destroy the Canaanites, uh, th this was a big problem. God reveals in both Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 7 that Yahweh, your God, will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly for the wild beasts will grow numerous, too numerous for you. 
Before his death, Joshua promised them that God would drive out the pagan nations as promised if they would cling to and obey him. If they would not, then he would not drive them out uh, and they would become a snare and a trap. And that's exactly what happened. So their failure to obey meant the pagan nations are still around them. And after Joshua and all the generation that followed him died, there arose another generation after them that did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. So you have a generation that forgets their history. That's the next step. Uh, so they, they disobey, then they forget their history. Sound familiar? Uh, by the time of the judges, the current generation didn't have even a memory of their godly ancestors. Uh, so, And then you have idolatry. Without a memory of what God has done or his commands, they serve the Baal and the Asherah. And so uh, they, they fall into idolatry, and that brings more chastisement from God. And they mix with the pagan nations. A major factor in the pagan nations influencing Israel was intermarriage. This was in direct violation of God's command that they do not mix with the nations of Canaan. So they, so they intermarry with people that have a different tradition, different faith, and it, and, and it, it becomes part. I mean, it's hard. Like, this is one of the things that I've noticed, um, even with the whole debate over LGBT stuff, is when someone has a family member who's uh, claims to be one of these identities, things often change that that person could have been orthodox in their theology against it. And then things change because you have someone in close proximity to you who is now advocating the thing that you opposed, but you don't want to reject them. And you feel like if you reject their ideas, you reject them. And that that's just the way humans work. So um, this is why God warned, look, if you bring in this, you willfully bring in these, these pagan peoples, and you think you're strong enough, you're not, you're, you're going to succumb to their ideas at some point, or at least you're going to soft pedal it. And when you soft pedal it, that's just a stepping stone into succumbing to it. And then they reap the consequences of uh, their disobedience. They did what was right in their own eyes, and that led to chaos uh, on the social level. And so it's just basically saying we shouldn't be surprised at what's happening in the West. I mean, this is we've seen this this show before. And I think that's a, a good observation that, I mean, because it's easy, if, especially for political conservatives to get kind of lost in the theories and the, you know, uh, I, I know I sometimes will, will just think a lot about like, well, what did modernity do to us? And, and what in looking at things as um, extensions of that, which modernity did a lot, but there are just some basic things. If you just open a Bible and you read it and you see what God says, you can see kind of clearly what's actually happening. And, and the solutions are, are fairly simple in a way. There's uh, complicated, um, certainly ways of, uh, I guess, administering some of these solutions. But the, the principle is we got to get back to God. We got to get back to honoring God. Now, how do we do that? That's where you can get into discussions. Uh, but uh, that's uh, the simple solution here, a return to obedience. And then there's a, a an article that I wrote called Russell Moore Loses His Religion. I'm not going to go over this one because I already did a, a podcast on Conversations That Matter, my other podcast, where I talk in detail about Russell Moore's book. Uh, but this, if you want a tight, here's a review of the book uh, that uh, just gets to the point, hard-hitting, uh, Russell Moore Loses His Religion on truthscript.com. Uh, then we have a, an article from uh, Charles uh, Jacoby, uh, Daily Worship, A Reminder Against Subjectivism. And he talks about the importance of daily worship. This is convicting for even me. We've been enjoying, uh, so, so he talks about enjoying family worship. And he says that um, it has not only brought us closer to the Lord, but it serves as a time for us to commune with one another. Uh, and, and that's so important to remember that your family worship time is not just about you coming to the Lord, although that's the main thing. It's, it's about you together doing it. And, and in, that, in, in that process, a bond forms. Um, the sweet moments are great. It's double the joy to encounter things in Scripture together uh, we had not before. Uh, those pleasures aside, it's dawned on me there's a derivative benefit of daily worship. One night before dinner, 
I was in a quiet, uh, quite, sorry, I was in quite a mood. The week was stressful, he says. I had loads of PhD research duties on my plate. I was scheduled for two presentations, an exam, and some other research obligations were looming over me. I was walking around the house in a cloud of cantankerousness. My stress was visible in my appearance and likely audible in my tone. I was not controlling my emotions like I ought to. Solomon says, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his own spirit than he who captures a city. I wasn't capturing any cities. Thankfully, I recognized how I was acting before meeting my wife at the table. I knew we would soon worship together. It came to me that my attitude was in the way of things, was jeopardizing the time, and would soon ruin the pleasure of eating a handmade meal. And Which is, by the way, that's great. For, for wives, just know your husbands appreciate those handmade meals. Anyway, uh, a pleasure that is more than mere eating. Yes, it is. And turn the air sour before worship. What a shame. And could I be so pompous as to facilitate the liturgical exercise of worship in an ungrateful state? Facilitate them before the triune God? I tightened up once aware of my ire. Shortly after reading the law, confession, and catechesis, my emotions had faded. Soon I was settled. So it is beautiful. This is what, uh, this keeps you regular as far as like your um, homeostasis is maintained, your spiritual homeostasis when you cultivate this. So he talks about how his emotions subsided. Uh, daily worship trains us to hone a certain mastery over ourselves, to override what we feel in the moment and eventually obtain how we ought to feel and how we ought to act according to context. The primary mechanism that trains us is the expectation of worship itself. Those who practice it um, are daily benefactors. And, and so, it, man, this is a great insight, uh, in my opinion. I'm going to just skip ahead here. Um, he says, consider how being ingenuine is contra the modern subjectivist mindset. Often the modern mind takes the inner and impresses it on the outer, letting one's emotions and subjective states rule the day. Authenticity is the chief virtue. So that is very true. You're supposed to be authentic, even if that authenticity is something evil within you that's part of your sin nature. At least let it out. Be authentic, right? And he says, this is wrong. This is, this is not how we should uh, behave. We shouldn't prize that. And of course, oftentimes, here, here's the deception. What we think of as authentic is not even authentic. Um, it, it's, it, there's a distinction between there, there's your sin nature, and then there's, uh, I guess you could say your created nature. There, there's the way that God created you to be, right? And in, in the second Adam, in Jesus Christ, there's a restoration. There is a, um, uh, the ability to, to do those things that uh, for the right motive that God has uh, given to us. So there's this uh, restoration and, and this um, overturning of the sin nature uh, and the expected um, complete defeat of it uh, at the time of uh, the glorification. And so you have the sanctifying process that you're in where you're um, putting to death the deeds of the flesh and you're able to do it because you are redeemed. Uh, but, um, but even in man's state uh, in which he's not redeemed, there are, you know, Jesus talks about this. Uh, would a, even an ungodly father give his child a snake when he asks for a fish? No, because there, there are these instinctual things uh, that are part of who you are that are good things God gave you. They don't necessarily give, you know, if you're a non-Christian and you don't have the right motives, it's not a heavenly good. It doesn't please God uh, enough to gain his favor. It's not, um, it's not something that uh, can apply to your redemptive status at all. But uh, it is the outworking of something good that God created, uh, though marred by sin. And so 
So anyway, what am I trying to say? What I, the, the, the bottom line here, what I'm trying to say, and this is not in the article, I'm just saying this, uh, is that the authenticity movement, if you want to call it that, seeks to take things that you feel are important and, and make those your, uh, and wear those on your sleeve and, and, and shout those things out. But it, it's really more of a justification for your fleshly desires, not the way. So, so, so your authentic self, let's say, is you were a man, right? But if you do this transition and you say, I'm not a man anymore, I'm a woman now, uh, that's supposedly now your authentic self. Of course, it's not your authentic self. Of course, it's not the way you were designed, but it is the way that you feel. It is the way that you you think based on experience you should be. So experience becomes the chief um, way to figure out your authentic self and who you are. So he says, look, uh, he, he talks about Romans 7, uh, for there I know there's nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the working out is not good. So he says, look, there's a sin nature here. This authentic self is not good. We have to conform, and devotional life helps you conform uh, to uh, the, a standard to the right thing. And, and regular time in the word with your family is, um, is important for that reason. Uh, so anyway, it's a really, it's a good article. It's a convicting article. Uh, and then the last article that I want to talk about is, uh, I like this one. This is from pastor Seth Brickley, seeing God's world through the music of Johnny Horton. Now, some of you might not know who Johnny Horton is. Uh, he died, I want to say, like in 1961 or so, or I guess 1960. He died November 5th, 1960. So yeah, I mean, unless you are very old, you, you wouldn't remember his songs on the radio or anything. But I happen to know who Johnny Horton is because like Seth, when I was younger, my, uh, my I think I guess my dad had a CD and we listened to some Johnny Horton. And um, some of his classics are like North to Alaska, uh, Whispering Pines, The Battle of New Orleans. That'll still show up on the oldie station. Uh, and... And these were Americana music. It was music about the United States, music about um, uh, about the beauty of the United States, the history of the United States, the heroism. And he talks about being a child uh, going to on a road trip to Alaska. And during our vacation, we saw God's beauty in creation from Seward to Fairbanks. Alaska is unlike any other state as oceans. It is. He talks about the beauty of Alaska. And I've been there and it is incredible. It is incredible. While we journeyed through this majestic land, we had Johnny Horton with us the whole way. As we drove and listened to his songs, it was as if he was in the car singing with us. Uh, and uh, the reason everyone knows uh, Johnny Cash and not Horton is that he, uh, Johnny Cash had a full music career, something Johnny Horton was not able to fulfill. So he, he wonders, you know, what if Johnny Horton hadn't died in that car accident? Would we, he would probably be a household name, right? And that would have been a great thing because he was so patriotic and Americana that, you know, we could have used that, I suppose. Um, but anyway, he says that uh, uh, they were listening to his music, and um, he, he says what you can tell listening to Horton's music is that he loved the world that he lived in. In North Alaska, he describes the gold rush in Alaska, winding rivers, the northern lights running wild, uh, found in the land of the midnight sun. He describes the old white mountain just a little southeast of Nome. I presume this mountain is referring to Mount McKinley, now called Denali. So he talks about that um, in a different song, Whispering Pines. He captures the pleasant sight of pines as they move in the wind. In, this, in his songs, he also highlights the deep love that is found between a man and a woman. So, of course, love songs are part of this. He talks about those. Um, these, are, these, these are instincts given by God. Uh, in Scripture, Adam was so smitten by Eve that he wrote a poem to her. This is, <laughs> this is the last. Uh, At last is bone of my bones and flesh of my blood, flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Lastly, Horton's songs are patriotic. We live in an area where American elites are trying to deconstruct our past, but Horton celebrates the past. The song, uh, The Battle of New Orleans, uh, the World War II song, Sink the Bismarck, um, uh, Jim Bridger. He even uh, writes a song uh, about the Confederate Army called Johnny Reb. And uh, in 1958, Horton sang the song to the final surviving Confederate soldier. Uh, and, uh, and, and so he, he says that Johnny Horton was able to see the, the good uh, in even um, in Confederates, in, uh, in all kinds of different people from America's history who uh, had heroic attributes. Horton's music shows the image of God displayed in him. He recognized what a wonderful world God created through his beauty, shown in nature through the good order and romance and the story of American history that God has written. By, and, and by the way, I should I should probably pause there. Some people's antennas might go up. What do you mean God has written the story of American history? Well, he's written the story of all people's histories. This isn't saying that America is the new Jerusalem or Israel. It is uh, just saying that, look, God is, this is in providence, which is something people used to talk about a lot more. In his providence, uh, he is accomplishing his purposes, as mysterious as they can be, uh, through the complex history of a people. By all accounts, Horton was not a believer, but at his funeral, interestingly, his dear friend Johnny Cash read scripture from John 20 that describes the resurrection of Christ. Even though this old singer did not appear to be a child of God, uh, I am grateful for him. As God's image bearer, he showed me something of God through helping me see this world better. And for that, I will always thank the Lord for Johnny Horton. And, and so this is actually a, a, an interesting piece to, to come right after the, the, this piece on daily worship, because the piece on daily worship is saying that, look, you know, we have the sin nature and it needs to we need to come back to reality. We need to come back to what the scripture says, and that will help us. Uh, and then this piece on Johnny Horton says, look, even someone who's not a Christian can recognize certain things. And, and I, I, I don't think they contradict at all. I think um, it is true that uh as i said before that we have a we have in, certain instincts that god has given to us from creation that are good like caring for your young for example uh these are good instincts when people don't do that even the non-christians say that's a psychopath that's someone that's not normal right because they they've fallen so far into depravity that they've rejected the god-given instincts that are just basic to all humans and you know johnny horton whether he was a christian or not there was a cultivation there of um, some, some good things, some, some things that, um, that he was able to see the world, the good things about the world that God had made and sing about them, whether that was in history or in nature. And, and that's, I think one of the reasons I, I tend to like Johnny Horton, but I, there's a lot of singers that I like that some of them might not be Christians and authors I like, uh, and movies I like that the directors probably weren't Christians necessarily, but they are, they are showing something good about God's world. They are, um, they, they, they can, even they can recognize as Romans one talks about these attributes of God. And of course they suppress some of them. They, and the deeper into sin you get, the more you suppress, the more deeper into idolatry, but it doesn't mean God hasn't given them the mechanism or the, the instruments for uh, ascertaining that kind of beauty and creation. So that is true script for today. True script Tuesday. Don't forget overcoming evil, uh, and you can uh, sign up for the men's conference. I look forward to seeing those who come there. There is financial uh, aid available for those who need that. Just contact me. There's the info, uh, info at truescript.com. Uh, there's information at overcomingevilconference.com. And uh, God bless.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.